This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to another episode of The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a trans non-binary graphic designer and writer. They are the co-founder of the upcoming book, Transploitation, which will be a collection of essays by trans and non-binary writers on representation and horror. You can find their written work at Ghouls Magazine, and you can hear them on both the Six Sad Monsters podcast, as well as on Curse of the Killer Bee movie on Twitch. Beautiful welcomes to Ren Crane! Hi! Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have you on. Thank you for taking the time this uh, early evening for once for me (laughs) to talk. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, isn't it wonderful to finally speak to people in our own time zones, roughly? amazing. (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna have a lot of fun we'll be awake for once this is great yes but before we begin our discussion i would like to kick off each episode with a quote about beauty that relates to our topic this can be from philosophy or from the filmmakers themselves let's face it i have a track record for focusing on philosophy and today will be not it will be no different um just figured people could use a little bit in their lives uh today's quote is the following the problematic association of the image with the overly aesthetic and therefore with the inferior, is complexly and persistently intertwined with the history of cinema. Denigration slides from the image as such to specific kinds of images, too colorful, too seductive, too cosmetic. In each case, modeling the image that is too imagistic for its own good. These slippages make the pretty difficult to discern. It emerges in the gaps between values or as an unspoken counterpoint to critical assertions. Now, that was on the pretty and not the beautiful, but it does have a bit to do with the beautiful once I unpack that a little bit later. Uh, I will reveal who said this in just a moment, but first, Ren, let's talk a little bit about you and horror and your life. What's uh, what, what's uh, horror for you, and how did you uh, get started in this crazy train? Oh, I mean, horror is... Other than everything, it's... It's <laughs> <laughs> horror. I mean, that's a true fact, especially in the year 2021. <laughs> but Fair. So I actually only recently got back into horror over the last few years. I was like okay. very busy with design and photography and music and just everything else at university to actually get into horror and then a couple of years ago I started listening to horror movie podcasts and the way they analyzed them and connected with them different like I just really liked the way I saw them so differently to everyone else and in the end it's like how people connect to it on a personal level that I find so beautiful about it especially horror because it's it's a bit more personal than like happy films because it makes you afraid or uncomfortable. And that's kind of, I don't know. I think it just makes you more vulnerable. I have to definitely agree with that. And 
as somebody who comes from a comedy perspective, like, or at least like professionally comes from comedy, like myself, I've always been into horror, but you're right that it's funny how with horror films, the ones that I've been more attached to, you know, you'll fight for them like a child, won't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if they dislike it, you're just like, I'll cut you. But if somebody <laughs> hates your favorite comedy, you just say fair. Yeah, you're like, it's comedy subjective, but when it's when it's something you're afraid of and that vulnerable with, I feel like it's just, it's so much more personal to you. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, wait a minute. How long have you been writing horror and on horror then? <laughs> well, I did like horror when I was a kid, so don't get me wrong. Mm. I was raised by a big horror fan. My mom was very much the sort of person where she was like, if you think you're ready, you can watch this film. Wow. <laughs> so I accidentally watched Dusk Till Dawn. It was like left in the VHS player. And mm -hmm. after that, she was kind of like, well, if you're fine with that, I can allow you to watch other things. So I started with Nightmare on Elm Street, um, the original The Haunting and Blair Witch and just kind of went from there. And then I, I just, I got distracted and... When I came back to it, I was like, I started re-examining all of those films that I used to love. And I was like, oh, why did I love them? And I just have never stopped writing about them. <laughs> and we're all happy that you, you know, I, I love your work. You're a great inspiration to me when it comes to your writing. Um, I that really appreciate. So much. <laughs> well, and, I, and it comes from the heart. I really appreciate how you will just bear your soul in the works that you do. And, you know, the fact that you went straight to vulnerability with your description of horror, it shows in all of your work, for sure. Oh, wow. Thank you. That genuinely means a lot. Ah, well, I'm happy to bring it <laughs> a little bit. Speaking of brightening, <laughs> uh, what movie are we going to be talking about today? Today we're talking about Braid, <laughs> which I, Braid. I doubt many people have actually heard of. <laughs> It also has so many names, I found out, because the copy that I have is a German copy, and they call it Obsessed, <laughs> yeah, with they, a German subtitle. They call it Obsessed in the UK, too, I think. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I also heard that there's another, like, working title in the US that was Nobody Leaves. Yes. <laughs> Which I like Nobody Leaves as a title, to be honest. It works very well. I agree, I agree. Although it does have that kind of don't breathe kind of sound to it, I suppose. True. You're away from. But I think this would have been first, would it? I actually can't remember which one of these came first. <laughs> uh, I mean, when it comes to festival circuits and stuff, I have no idea how long this yeah. one existed before it was released. So it could have been made before, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think this was released in 2019. Oh, wow, uh, yeah. Wide release. So it's a little more recent, uh, at least for general eyes. Uh, before we get into the details, and uh, listeners at home, you should know by now, we're going to get into lots of details here in a second. But uh, for those who are not aware of what Braid is and what it is about, I wrote, uh, as I do, a very succinct layout of the plot of the film. So here is a very, very brief synopsis of Braid. <clears throat> Fledgling drug dealers Petula and Tilda seemingly have it made when they check the total value of the shipment they are about to sell. Unfortunately, the cops are onto them and they have to flee their hideout without drugs in hand. Now, on the run and owing a substantial sum to their provider, Coco, the two need cash. Fast. 
Petula quickly decides that the only place to get the money they need in the 48 hours that they have been given is to raid the safe of their childhood friend, Daphne. The only snag is that Daphne is stuck in a loop, obsessed with playing a game the three of them played as children. There are only three rules to the game. One, everyone must play. Two, no outsiders allowed. And three, nobody leaves. Once inside, they must do exactly what Daphne tells them for as long as they are in her sights. Time ticks away as Petula and Tilda succumb to the whims of their disturbed friend. The result is a wild, drug-induced feast for the senses. Who is really in control here? Who's truly mad? And when will the game come to an end? So those are questions that popped up in my mind uh, when watching it. <laughs> this is not a straightforward film. But before no. we get into like the confusions and little plot elements and stuff, I have to ask the general, uh, you know, pulsing question right now. Why braid when talking about beauty and horror? So, I mean, anyone who follows me online, they've likely seen <laughs> me talking about this film at, at least once a day. And I, I've messaged with Mitzi a couple of times. She was made aware Ooh. of me. and. She, she actually posted a screenshot of my tweet and posted it on her Instagram because I was saying, this is my perfect film. And <laughs> so it's just, when I say it's my perfect film, I mean, it's like the story is beautiful, but also aesthetically it is, it hits every single point for me of what I like in my visual media. And it's, it's got this kind of like sickly sweet element, but then it's also really twisted and sinister. And I love that. <laughs> sickly sweet is a perfect description <laughs> for the majority of this film. Yeah. It is kind of a genre in and of itself, isn't it? Oh, definitely. I There's a few films that have this specific sort of style that I just really gravitate towards. But Braid is the one that just gets all of it correct for me. I see. So are there any elements of the film that strike you more strongly than others? Or is it just this package is so perfect that it just leaps at you? Well, one of the things I lean towards in any film is if it has a found family or chosen family aspect. And this mm -hmm. is not only a horror film that's about a very isolated found family, but it's really flawed and weird and horrific and it makes a game out of relationship dynamics true uh, very literally as well yes. in, in places of the film I, I love that aspect of it myself as well because it is true that i find that a lot of families whether it be your biological or found families that it is kind of like a game sometimes <laughs> especially when you know we all have those moments when somebody's like, stop, and you know they mean it. <laughs> You're going to tease them just a little bit more. There's something oh, yes. fun about it, right? Definitely. I. <laughs> the meaner I am to you, the more I love you. That's, <laughs> that's what I tell people. <laughs> well, knowing your taste in films, I highly believe that, yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Well, I hope, it, hope you don't go as far as the films, of course, but uh, Maybe. <laughs> this one goes pretty far. Not as far as I had anticipated based on the trailers. I was really expecting, um, you know, we had spoken earlier. I Well, actually, 
late last year about excision. Now, that movie. Yes. That movie goes hard. Yeah. That. Yeah. That was a hard movie. <laughs> so. Very extreme. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> when you suggested this and I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, here we go. I got another one. Uh, it came close, I will say. I, I was very tense through a lot of this film. Uh, it plays with the emotions quite strongly. Yeah, I think Braid leads you up to the edge of that happening, whereas Excision, I, I'm i so glad you introduced me to that film, by the way, because <laughs> that just that pulls you off the edge and you die for like thousands of miles. <laughs> it's so, so dark. It does take a bit of a steep drop at yeah. like the halfway point, doesn't it? Whereas Braid is more like, we'll, we'll lead you up to the edge of the cliff, and then you're not on the cliff you thought you were on. <laughs> like Exactly so. Uh, so this movie plays a lot with psychology and uh, actually a lot to do with... Okay, <laughs> my brain is getting ahead of my words here. It's funny, my, my horoscope said this would happen. But... Uh, <laughs> I noticed that the film, it kind of touches upon gaslighting, but then it flips it on its head, kind of like almost like about how we can gaslight ourselves sometimes is how it felt to me. Yeah, honestly, everyone in this film is gaslighting everyone. The film's gaslighting you. It's making you do it to yourself as you're watching the film. It's very, very manipulative <laughs> in the best way. <laughs> yeah it's a fun romp and i will say i love the family dynamic that's created but between our three protagonists especially since at the beginning of the film you feel as if they're very estranged yes and the longer it goes on it what struck me the like, at first what struck me was the fact that how do you know how to play this game so well if you haven't been in that house for so long and i already yeah. found it weird <laughs> okay, you've got costumes interesting yeah, what I thought that was at first, the way I read that was that until I knew the ending, obviously, mm -hmm. I thought it was about how with relationships like that, you do kind of just pick up where you left off. You don't mm -hmm. feel that long time in between. You're just like, yep, we're back where we were and we keep going. And I, I thought that was what it was at first. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> We don't have to do the same work that the film did, I suppose. We can. I think it might actually be easier for listeners if we just get straight to what that ending is to talk about it freely. Is that we find that so th the whole story you have Petula and Tilda who are seemingly trying to rip off Daphne, but Daphne's kind of uh, cuckoo basically <laughs> stuck in a loop, and it just seems kind of sweet how they're just going to do her weird, twisted, violent game. But then you notice things like. Nobody has any scars. Yeah, limping. I thought that was the weirdest part. <laughs> uh, the, the first thing that happens is that Tilda gets hit really hard on the kneecap with a meat tenderizer, and in the next scene, she's fine. Yeah, and not a lot of people pick up on the meat tenderizer bit, which I, because that thud when you hear it, it's very mm. Mm. yeah, you wince, and <laughs> most people don't realize that it's like fake until you get to the bit later on with the straight razors and then the scars yeah. are gone again. But yeah, it's fake <laughs> going from the get-go, the injuries. It's so interesting how violently real these injuries are. And it, I, I swear to you, it took me about 
an hour before I started to suspect that things weren't what they seemed in this house. Uh, what we find out is that Daphne, I, okay, we're going to get into this because you're going to have more <laughs> insight than I am. I've only seen this movie twice now in 24 hours, but uh, it seems that Daphne, if she is as disturbed as they say she is, she's not the only one. Or yeah. at the very least, Petula, who seems to be the most clear headed of the group, is the one who's having the most psychological issues. And you just don't notice until basically Tilda flat out tells you. Yeah, that well, confuse me. Petula is what I find interesting is you brought up the fake injuries and the real injuries you don't see until they're revealed, which is all yeah. the times they've they've done the game. And mm-hmm. so Petula is the only one who's got actual real physical injuries from playing and they're kept from you for most of it and you're made to think she's in control and she's running the game and they're using Daphne and then all of a sudden no Petula is the one who has no idea what's going on she doesn't know where she is like how long she's been coming back for it's I feel so sorry for her in that scene (laughs) It's a very distressing scene. I think if anybody's had that moment of just being so anxious that you're really confused, yeah, that's the scene that's going to shake you up a bit. And it, it kind of reminds me of the scene in Midsummer when Danny's freaking and they're kind of crying with her and, and doing yes. everything with her. But Petula does not get treated so kindly by everybody. She gets a lot of tough love as a response instead. No, with Petula, I, I just feel really... I, I see myself in Petula the most in this, and okay. not just because um, the way she looks gives me gender euphoria for <laughs> most <laughs> of the film. But Understandably. Yeah, she's... You've all seen the pictures on my Twitter, I'm sure. But um, (laughs) she has that moment, and as someone who has a personality disorder and I have a lot of mental illness struggles, there are moments where you kind of do question your reality and you don't know Mm -hmm. really what's going on. And the way she's treated when that happens is so harsh. And it's just really, really humanizing of the person that's been kind of running everything throughout the entire thing yeah that's what i found particularly touching as well as like like i said unlike danny she doesn't get the same kind of coddling but no i'll also say in real life people tend to either just coddle you or give you a cold shoulder where sometimes you just need that harsh snap back to reality of hey this is what i meant this is oh, the situation yeah. And let's go do. Let's go get a. Let's go get some fries. You know. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the situation. I mean, like for me too, has just called for someone to be like, you know, no, get yourself together. You're not doing this right now. Like, <laughs> we don't have time for this. You need to. <laughs> it just not in a bad way, but sometimes coddling just allows you to wallow in that stuff more, and you want someone to help, like just kind of be like, no, we're not going to feel sorry for ourselves right now. We're going to get back up. And Petula does. She keeps playing the game and she bounces right back into Dr. Maud as soon as she sees an opportunity to. Oh, yeah, she jumps on that. I, <laughs> at first, 
that's a, that's probably the biggest twist for the in the film for me because I that whole scene is where they blur the lines is is, is so that what happens is eventually Daphne says okay you can all go the game's over uh, besides I have to take care of my baby <laughs> yeah and that's her little hint that she kind of still wants to play the game but Tilda's like okay thank God I go I want to get out of here and go do something a little like different today and nope Petula just says. We need to talk to you. Uh, I need to talk about your baby. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, little did we know office. how much Tilda was manipulating that entire scene. Later yeah. on, we find out that, you know, she wasn't actually feeling that way. She wasn't done with the game. She was just pushing Daphne until Petula stepped in and continued. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at first, since we haven't gotten to the twist at this point that Petula... <laughs> has been trying to leave the game multiple times and the other two are like, we really just want to finish our game. Uh, or just, we really want to keep our family together and stay as a unit. And you're. Yeah. I mean, the twist is like, Petula has never been out of the game. They, they were never mm-hmm. on the train. They were never in the apartment. They, they were in the house that whole time playing the yeah. game. Yeah, and you can also see the details of it inside the doll room. And they yes. make it clear too when they say, I am the doll doctor as well. Like you Yeah. The doctor for dolls. Like <laughs> Oh, that's that's one of the things I love most about this film and Mitzi's style is she uses aesthetic and visual components to tell a story just as much as she uses dialogue or character or anything like that like you can see the full story in one shot of that playroom you could see the detective mm-hmm. the you can pinpoint all of the scenes of the film in that one room <laughs> yes uh and they come back to it multiple times as yeah. well to showcase these different elements just to see if people can pick up the breadcrumbs <laughs> as we go along and i would wager the majority of us did Do. not pick up on the <laughs> Oh, you thought they uh, did you pick it up very quickly? <laughs> I mean, I just I, I I spent ten years studying design and art history. Mm. I look for visual components that tell those stories anyway. So I think I was that's probably why this film speaks to me so much is I'm coming at it from that angle instead of just looking at it from the analytical, metaphorical point of view too. Yeah, I had a feeling that she basically laid a trap for people who think like me because (laughs) I was going to overanalyze the hell out of everything. I was like, okay, so there's probably something in their past. And so after she fell from the tree, there's probably some sort of (laughs) affair with the doctor. And that led to a Wow, you really traumatized. You imagined a whole whole different movie. (laughs) I want to see this movie too, though. It's a cool sounding movie, but I will say it is pretty pedestrian if you compare it to what we actually got, since there are a lot of movies that, that would do that kind of a twist. And I actually love that surprise. It was all a game from the, it's just like just a bunch of adult women acting like 12 year olds for the entire film. <laughs> yeah, there's a purity too. to that. In fact, so you were talking about the aesthetics of the film and the storytelling. Uh, that's a topic that has come up uh, in a few episodes now as well. And I've noticed that a lot of the films that have been chosen are those types of films that plot is great and all. But yeah. plot tends to be featured far more in what we're seeing and experiencing with these certain films than what's written on a script. And this is a, a certain 
you know, film that does that to the nth degree, I would say. It really relies a lot on the aesthetics for the viewing experience. Yeah, I would say, I, I mean, I've watched this countless times now. It's my top rated film. And frankly, I would have every still from this on my wall. They're all so beautiful, but it's also... It's the little details that I put into it for me that really just make it perfect. Right, right. Are there particular details that jump out at you that you might want to quickly discuss here? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the use of color palette to tell to show the effect of drugs is always one of my favorite things that is explored quite a lot in horror I found and I think the way this one did it was again it was like instead of it being really overwhelming and chaotic it was more like I said sickly sweet and it was it it flawed a bit more and it was just one of the things that stood out for me compared to other ones that have done the same sort of sequence Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just, obviously, I loved how queer the whole thing was. That was, <laughs> there were small bits, like when they were laid in the grave together in lace dresses is just one of mm. my favorite shots in film. It's also such a quick shot, too. It uh, is. It's one of those subsequent view kind of moments, because it's really, I, that's just at the beginning of the film, right? Yeah, there's that shot with them laid in the grave that I adore, and then there's the one of them sat in the garden where Petula's right. in the suit and Daphne's in like garden dress and Tilda's playing like a kid. And those two shots are my favorite of the film. Oh no, actually, there's also the shower shot with the blood and the shaving, which I can't fi- mm-hmm. I can't pick with this film. See what I mean? I'm like, oh, this shot and this shot and this <laughs> shot. There's no end. <laughs> There really isn't in the end. No, I can't think of a single shot that I found basic or boring or anything. Even little details that are actually inconsequential entirely to the film. Things like the water dripping from the ceiling for the leak when they're yeah. talking to the fake cop. And also the the use of black and white, which I yes. really like and think it. I don't. I. I Sometimes that doesn't necessarily work for me. It depends on the style of the film, but mm-hmm. my kind of two sides of my personality is insanely colorful and then black and white. So it hits both of those. <laughs> yeah, you literally <laughs> say <laughs> same vibe. <laughs> exactly. That is totally my vibe. It's either cotton candy or the shadows, basically. Exactly. And- <laughs> I loved how she used this as well. So the use of colors were used rather specifically. Mm -hmm. And the black and white, for instance, was always a moment that people were either figuring something out or they're really like, it's like an anxiety spike hits somebody. And then you get that kind of Tarantino close up on the eyes and it just turned black and white real quick. I thought that was a nice touch. I loved that, especially because it was obviously primarily around the apartment and then the mm-hmm. detective, and then Petula figuring things out. Those were like the three main black and white components, mm-hmm. which, like you said, were all... It was probably the the moments of like the most 
when she was most emotionally vulnerable or anxious and same with Daphne because when she's talking to the detective it all it keeps jumping back and forth as she gets very very unhinged in that scene which Madeline Brewer is amazing (laughs) I powerhouse yes I just I want more of her in everything (laughs) Right now she's tied to The Handmaid's Tale, which might keep her away from cinema for a little bit, but hopefully... Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, right? I hate when good... A- I mean, okay, if you like series, I'm sure you're all wonderfully happy when you get great <laughs> actors that, that go over there. But for those of us who are more like into films, we're like, where do they go? Come back. Give it yeah, because like, you get them for years, but we lose them for years. <laughs> exactly. But then again, you have a movie like Braid that you can just watch over and over and over and enjoy those performances. And you will get something new out of it every time, trust me. (laughs) Yes. Yes, there are just enough characters that you can really focus on each individual if you want to. You can focus on the main plot. Or you could just get swept up in this crazy acid trip of a film that has been created for you. (laughs) Speaking of which, uh, so we've alluded to it as well. You mentioned, you know, the brightness of the colors that comes into play mainly on probably the most interesting scene in the film for me, which was the PCP trip. Yeah, you have two of them back to back and they each is so one's Tilda and one's uh, Petula. They each get high and they see some stuff. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it's all well, you you know, I'll let you. How does this look? How would you describe this? The the trips? Yeah. I mean, they're both so kind of different i'm i i want to know what you think of it first because i've seen these scenes like a million times and i'm dying to know because you only watched it for the first time this week isn't it a wonderful feeling when you see somebody who's just stepped into your world yes i'm like tell me everything you think about it please <laughs> it's funny usually that's me on this podcast but it is true like the last two or three films i've been the guinea pig for people so okay I, i'll i'll uh <laughs> I'll give you a happy today then and jump in with this. Uh, My feelings on it were I loved the pink and the purples so much. There was also something so magical and beautiful about that kind of gold, almost like brass colored lipstick that all the women had and the little girls had it on as well. Yes. It's like a nostalgia filter through... Well, a, a, a PCP trip, I suppose. Um, and I really enjoyed how the two characters had two completely different trips. And once you know the plot of the story a little bit better, it makes sense why Tilda's just kind of squawking with the birds and touching grass and having yeah, fun. Yeah, Tilda's just flying with it. <laughs> She's got some bad memories, of course. She still feels guilty about the time she accidentally threw Daphne out of the treehouse. But she doesn't feel as guilty as she probably should, to be fair. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Tilda is a bit of a sociopath, you find out throughout yes. the whole film. She doesn't have a lot of patience or feelings for other people. No. Um, they they touch on that pretty well in the train, although none of that is deemed real, quote unquote. You still have the fact that in her fantasy, she decides to co- like cook up something of a woman who wants to sit with her. And asked her, like, oh, are you okay? My friend's going to sit down, so sorry, honey. Oh, and then accidentally gets slapped in the face by this clumsy woman and steals her purse. <laughs> yeah, that slap, like, 
If that happened so to me in reality, though, I would just be so taken aback, and it would. <laughs> it's just one of those moments where I'm like, that felt weirdly real, considering yeah. when you find out it was. Not just like in it was a film that it was like acted like in the film it was also a made up situation that didn't actually happen. True, it is fake on multiple layers. <laughs> it's like metaphoric. Yeah, but I loved how just what a wonderfully realistic detail. We've all done something clumsy like that where you're just super embarrassed and you probably hurt somebody and you're just I'm gonna go home and never leave. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where when you do it you never stop thinking about it for the rest of your life even though the person that you did it to probably doesn't even remember <laughs> what it does bring into question is who was playing this passenger on the train since everybody must have been playing a role for the reality to be strong enough for them to be you know kind of improvising their way through everything so i have to wonder if daphne just like cracked the shit out of tilda and the jaw just because because they don't like each other very much i mean i think they all kind of get their shots in with each other at one point in this right yes. like there's there's no by the end of the film they've all hurt each other in some way shape or form which felt like part of the heart of the film to me i read up on the motivations for it just a little bit and i want to make sure i get people's names correct <laughs> so yeah mitzi pyrone pyrone yeah you say her last name pyrone? So. well we'll say mitzi it's easier uh so no disrespect if i'm you know, using somebody's first name instead of the last name but i want to say <laughs> the name correctly uh what mitzi did fantastically and, and is showing that point that she was trying to make of like feminine relationships in the different strengths that come about with, as you put the found families, but also the toxicity that can come within a family. And without yeah. that very overpowering domineering masculine perspective behind it, this is a much more freeing perspective. I felt to show actually uglier bits that we tend to not talk about. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you said that because I completely agree. I've, I mean, the fact that I, I have reads about this that are related to trans masculinity, especially with Petula and the role that right. she takes on in the family and how easily she slips into that. But, and I also, <laughs> some of the shots, like when they're in the bath or in, they're in the graveyard and, they could be found family or they could possibly all be like in a relationship. I'm not entirely mm -hmm. sure. The dynamic seems to change as often as the day in this film. And yeah, but it does, it gets incredibly toxic and it's because these are all flawed characters and they all have their own issues that they're bringing to this shared relationship that they have. And I don't know. I just really like that. I don't, really enjoy characters that are too likable and mm -hmm. black and white morality in films tends to bother me because that's never how it actually is <laughs> not at all most of the people i know who have tried to present that to the outside world have a lot of darker shades in their gray yeah <laughs> and they're trying to present a lot of lighter shades in their gray but yeah if you want to just you know 
keep things structured. Oh, wholesome. This is all I'm nice. I'm a good person. I give to charities. But yeah, but what kind of nasty stuff are you saying to your families? And who are you making feel bad about themselves today? And exactly considered what you're doing today. We all do it. We all have moments of being just horrible people. And the difference between people is whether you notice and you take a step and try to evaluate that. Exactly. And I think like we all have that capacity to just be not great people to people we love. Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to watch a film that's like the perfect character. You know, they always do the right thing. They always say the right thing. They react the right ways in situations because I certainly don't. As someone whose situations are often dictated by severe anxiety I don't have a lot of control of my reactions. I say the wrong thing. I accidentally hurt people because I'm scared of the way I come across and it actually makes me seem a bit more like closed off and mean and because I'm like scared of looking anxious. So I don't want to watch a character that I can't relate to and I'd rather watch ones where it's like, yeah, these are unhealthy and well in this very unhealthy but at the end of the day like they love each other and as we see by the end of the film they (laughs) probably unfortunately for them do stay together for a very long time (laughs) (laughs) a disturbingly long amount of time i mean they definitely should get therapy and not and have time away from each other but i do love that their bond is what fascinates me Somehow they make it work. Yeah. I quite like that. It it really is a great example of when people say that, you know, not every method of mental health and coping help everybody the same way. Yeah. And so it's really easy to look into somebody's situation and say, oh, but that's toxic. You shouldn't do that. When you don't know how they're feeling and how much they support each other and how much love there is there doesn't mean that they couldn't make some adjustments and changes to make things more like beneficial to each other. Exactly. But if this is the way you're used to things and you're not genuinely hurting each other, which is a very big point of this film is nobody genuinely gets hurt throughout the whole film. No. Apart from even with Petula, I wonder cuz the uh, just the scene after so that we were talking about how Petula is the only one that gets real pain and, and uh, scarring as she gets cigarette burns on her arms every time that she tries to escape. But really, just the scene after they tell her about this, she has no scars on the inside of her arms. And they never come back. So yet again, I wonder if this is just another bit of conditioning to get her to believe that there's a reason for her to stay there when she has her kind of breakdowns the thing about the scars disappearing is so i do know that i said that they were real and i do think they are real i think they disappear when she's in the game and so that's why i consider that to be like the only real one because and i also i think it's self-inflicted i think the only harm that happens to petula while she's in these breaks of reality are self-inflicted i don't think Hmm. they actually do harm each other but it's like you were saying like they're they're all very they cope in unhealthy ways very very unhealthy ways but I find that it's 
I don't know, those people still deserve ha- to have empathy extended to them and to like see value in what they can bring to like a relationship, even if it is one like this. I like, I just think it's right to be more empathetic and understanding of someone's relationship when you can't necessarily see it straight away and you have to mm. dig a little deeper about why they feel that way instead of just writing it off as they're a bad person they're reacting in unhealthy ways which is the easiest thing in the world to do isn't it just exactly to... and sometimes you have to i that's not to oh, say yeah. if you're listening and you feel well i cut people out easily because i need to you should definitely protect yourself and find out yes. what is your comfort zone but that doesn't mean that you should necessarily treat people socially as if you know them in their situation based on your discomfort with them it's okay to be uncomfortable like if you're in a situation like that and i think you know if there's someone around you that's react like making you feel that way and that yeah you you should get out of that situation definitely like that's not complete like completely right on that do your relationships have to work for you. You have to, you know, make sure you're both benefiting from it in an equal and emotionally healthy way. And if that's not what's best for you, like you should walk away. But, you know, like you were saying, don't look at a stranger who might be doing something that you wouldn't do or think is like an unhealthy coping mechanism and just write them off as a terrible person is what I mean. Exactly. Exactly. And this film's a great example of this because it's really easy to get caught up in one or the other. In fact, so to bring in some of that philosophy here, yeah, <laughs> uh, I've mentioned it a few times. So for listeners, this will be a bit of information that is not necessarily new to you, but we always have a new guest. So I love to you know talk about things a little bit freshly for everybody. And in aesthetics and discussions of aesthetics, Aesthetics in general are already considered kind of like a lower conversation in film analysis. And it's been this way in art in general since pretty much the beginning. Uh, I had uh, Jolene Richardson on who will to see this is going to be out way after the episode. So episode two is Jolene Richardson (laughs) where we discussed Midsummer, and uh, she's a costume designer who also talked about how your color is considered like the lesser art of well, at least the lesser aspect of art. It's dangerous because it mystifies us, basically. We get caught up in all the pretty colors, but you know, most artists were more interested in form. Did you do it correctly? You see this in film critique a lot, too. Did they use the right film stock? Was the dolly positioned correctly? Did these actors hit their marks? How was the lighting and the shadowing and all of these little elements? When color in most movies i feel is the language that comes in with the film yeah it speaks louder than the rest of the film usually not to take away from the rest of the elements and so does lack of color too like the the lack of color or the overuse of color are both just as effective but they communicate such different things precisely so where things get a little blurrier even, since people don't really want to talk about color or aesthetic so much, if we were to talk about beauty, then people feel that we are getting into a very muddy conversation. 
it's almost subjective, even though in philosophy, you can make it more objective if you want to talk about the ways we experience beauty. And some people have definitely tried to make criteria on, well, it has to have these features in order for it to be categorically a beautiful image versus a other categorized uh, you know, placement. In this case of braid, there's a lot of beauty and there's also a lot of, philosophically speaking, prettiness and that is where my <laughs> quote comes from uh for listeners this would be a name that's not uh, foreign to you at all this is rosalind galt she's coming back everybody rosalind galt is a <laughs> professor of film studies at king's college in london she's the author of pretty film and the decorative image and queer cinema in the world and she's often focused on the philosophical discourse and sociopolitical readings of film aesthetics her feelings on the pretty is that you know from a feminist lens it is a, it's an aesthetic aspect of all image that is pushed down really far down because it's superficial and mm. because it's explicitly feminine. And anything feminine is just considered weak and frail in academic discourses most of the time. And so there's a lot of pushback on that. We're trying to, you know, re- kindle the fire and the power for these uh, certain uh, modes of thought. I feel that the prettiness here on a philosophical level plays into the beauty of the film. I think there's an interplay there. There's a lot of pretty imagery. You have very pretty protagonists as well. They're very doll-like in how they've yeah. put, been put together. The house itself is just a giant doll, <laughs> basically. And as Galt was saying in that quote that I gave earlier, I'm going to find it real quick. I'm <laughs> scrolling in my end. Uh, she's saying that it's difficult to discern where prettiness emerges because it's kind of in between states. And it's stuff that we're a little hush-hush about when we want to talk about things. It's either this is the most beautiful thing in the world or this is the most hideous thing that I've ever seen. Where somewhere in between, you do have a lot of other things like grotesque and pretty and yeah. boring, things like this. I feel that this film also highlights that in-betweenness, that sort of liminal space there as well, because of the characters and how they can go from grotesque, monstrous figures to beautiful, angelic figures to pretty little dolls. And it flows through constantly throughout the whole film. Now that I've given all of that kind of preamble, <laughs> I'd love to know if you have any thoughts on this line of thinking. I mean, yeah, I have a lot. <laughs> because Bring them. <laughs> talking aesthetics is something I've been passionate about for like the last decade. It's what I decided to study. It, and it's because... Like like you were saying, people, it's either beautiful or hideous and people kind of look down on things that are pretty and and it could be because it's like considered either feminine or childlike or yes. something like that. And it's it's often just considered fluff. And I see a lot of people who might watch this film once and say it's um like style or the substance or something, and they don't see like the way you did where you're like the the prettiness of this film reflects the the characters and the way they turn in a moment like that scene where they 
kill the detective and it's it's still a beautiful scene it's got that tile and it's very sterile and but then it's blood soaked and it's grotesque and monstrous and petula is horrified by it too and i just think things can be pretty and horrific at the same time and i love that all the time like so many of the films I've spoken about with people on this podcast have been very pretty to look at and equally just emotionally shattering to experience. And yeah. oftentimes if we go to that next step and we talk about beauty, if we want to talk about those two as a hierarchy, then I have found, especially in a movie like Braid, let's just uh, to focus on Braid then. It's exactly those moments when it's the most just fucked up, basically, <laughs> that it's beautiful as hell. Where the name of the film comes from, that sequence with Petula and Tilda tied up with their own braid extensions. Ugh, that shot. <laughs> Gorgeous, right? It gives you chills. It's Yeah, it's like, it's one of the most beautiful shots in the film, and you're admiring it and you're like these people are immobilized and Daphne is unhinged and they're in like real danger but you're just like oh it's so beautiful though <laughs> it's also the filmmaking as well I think Mitzi's camera work speaks a little differently than the context sometimes because yeah. if we do keep that familial context that the film is showing us her shots don't change with the family elements like the shot in the garden that you were talking about when Petula's kind of being the dad on the bench <laughs> and then you have Daphne next to her they're just chilling out that shot very it's framed very similarly to this wide shot that they have of the two bound up in their braids and I think it's because she's trying to show like these are the family photos basically these are those beautiful yeah. connections because keep in mind they are playing along we just yeah. don't know Petula's the only one who's like, what the fuck is happening? Because <laughs> she forgot <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a... I love that, actually, that those would be what Mitzi or even Daphne would consider the family portraits of the group. And I, I love what she does with the camera work and that, especially the way she uses upside-down shots, and it's always... Mm -hmm. It's always when Petula is most unsure of what's happening that things are turning upside down, like when uh, Tilda's in the the crib thing and she's strapped to the yeah. board, or when she's in the shower covered in blood and it does that really slow turn and everything gets righted. And it's as the camera gets righted after that that she starts leaning into the game more instead of fighting against it she really gets swept up in it again as if she just like a switch just clicks and she's doctor again she has no yeah need to be petula at that moment anymore i know that, <laughs> that was mind-boggling to me how quickly she jumped back into her role and that moment with the uh, where she's shaving, and though she's obviously not really shaving, it's a fake straight razor, and I love that even more because it. I think that probably is what made it read as such a trans mask thing for me at the time, who right. wasn't on hormones or anything, and I was like, why? Like I wouldn't have anything to shave, but like it's still a process that you look at like that, and the way she loses herself in it, and 
gives all like the music, which the music in this is also used incredibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the choices in pre-existing music combined with this the skull almost train spotting like score. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I I I had never thought about that until you just said it because I haven't watched train spotting in years, but wow. <laughs> it re- it hit me the moment I said it. I was because it's been on the tip of my tongue. I keep thinking of that little halfway house they were in with all these drugs yeah. and stuff like what does and it's just like this kind of oh, weird yeah bad trance music i'm like what is it that reminds me of this so much oh, that is a double feature <laughs> transporting oh, bread wow they're, too, they're a dichotomy for sure they've got be. a lot of similarities like now that i think because it's like the bit with the baby in the crib and baby, stuff and yeah. transporting like that's very bread <laughs> It is. It is very brave. You would think that there would be a moment when the little doll of the cop would have done something like <laughs> Petula or something. Maybe that was the only thing I could have used a little bit more of is like really lean into those. The bizarre. Things. Yeah. Make me more confused. That would have been fun. <laughs> I've never heard anyone watch this film and want to be more confused. That's a first. Well, I introduced you to excision, so I do like confusing That's films. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a brand. Uh, a little bit. A little bit. In fact, I'm really hoping somebody brings in Excision one day. So if you're listening and you're like, I like Excision, well, you know where to go. You can find me on Twitter. Hit me up and we'll we'll talk. Cause... I mean, it was between Braid and Excision for me, but I the personal connection to Braid, I had to bring this one on. <laughs> I'm happy you did. I'm always delighted when people can open up my uh, horizons and... <laughs> broaden my tastes in films as well same so let's see we were talking about the interplay then between the horrible and the beautiful in this film what i was getting at was the moments for me that really stood out as these breathtakingly beautiful moments are like what you were saying is say when you're talking about petula's moment with the straight razor now it could be for me definitely also chiming in on that queer reading as well because i do like me a good queer reading (laughs) (laughs) everyone should (laughs) everyone it's delightful open yourself up to the experience horror is gay Uh, (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) it it's such a fascinating thing to see put on film since it's not explored too broadly so it just feels right when you can see yourself like that in a film yeah, but let's not deny the fact that she is simulating slicing her face up with <laughs> a razor and just splashing blood all over. The bathroom. I mean, anyone who's had dysphoria knows what that mm. like has wanted to do that themselves. We all know. We do know. We do know. <laughs> <laughs> And that could co- communicate the beauty behind it for certain perspectives. That it's just a an emotion that unless you've had it, it's really hard to explain to people how it's like, sometimes I want to take all of my physical features and remove them. And yes. Then, and I want to feel every second of pain that that would cause just to know I had the experience. You know, there's a weird part of the brain that does that to you. Yeah. I really appreciated them putting that in the film because Petula goes ham on that razor. Like... <laughs> 
Yeah, I was expecting a full poltergeist scene, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, I was expecting cheeks to start coming off and stuff, but no, it was a fortunately a fake razor, but it was a very visceral scene, even without the real violence. Yes. And of course, we had the visceral fake out just about five minutes before this when she gets her quote unquote Chelsea smile or Glasgow smile, depending on where you're from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've heard it both, but I'm, I'm British. So like, I hear people <laughs> refer to that all the time as Chelsea smile, Chelsea mostly. Smiles. All right. I've heard it mainly that as well. Yeah. I was delighted to see it because I don't <laughs> think there are enough Chelsea smiles in horror. No. Ma, <laughs> uh, give us least, more Chelsea smiles, please. Please. And and no post-Chelsea smiles. We need to see the Chelsea smile in action. Yes. Um, and give a reason for it as well. We're not some bloodthirsty people here. We just, the, the idea that they were carving a smile on Petula's face while she's strapped to a wheelchair was yeah like when she, when she's like i'm not playing the game anymore daphne will literally carve a smile onto her face and i'm like that's beautiful yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh it's a very joker stuff right there and now smiling. <laughs> it's such an unsettling scene in fact i felt that part of the reason that they flipped it upside down was to kind of lower the impact of yeah. the brutality of what you were seeing and I wonder if Petula really believed that it happened or if she's so caught up in the game sometimes that she's just really good at playing along. I mean, you see after the shower scene when they're all eating gummy food at the table and mm-hmm. she she notices Tilda doesn't have scars anymore under her eyes, which I also yeah. loved those uh, crawl-like scars mm-hmm. on Tilda. Amazing. Like Yes, we would like more of them too, please. <laughs> but um, <laughs> she she notices that Tilda's a god, and then Tilda kind of gives her a nod, and she looks down at the glass table and sees, and she's like rubbing her face. She's genuinely confused about mm-hmm. where they've gone. So it, it was okay. definitely real for her in that moment, I think. Yeah, then I think that she was already slipping out of her capacity to experience the game and that was a really harsh kind of shove back into this is how we play Uh, yeah i think that's why it was also upside down as well because not only was her mindset upside down they flipped the entire thing when they did that they changed Mm -hmm. everything for her and she went in a completely different direction after that scene exactly the moment that she was able to wash it all off and then she ate all the gummies she was free and flying Interesting bit, too. They didn't eat any of the food until Petula started to play properly. I don't yeah. know if that's hit you before. It uh, hit me in my second viewing. Like, you haven't eaten anything until now. Yeah, and that also kind of felt very Midsummer-esque to me with the way Danny has that moment and everyone waits before they eat. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like the way they wait for her to be like willing to be a part of the cult in in this, like they wait for Petula to be on board with the game. And then once they know they're all having fun and they're all free. And I I think what spoils it is the detective, which is obviously a whole other aspect to their (laughs) stories, the way the detective comes in and whether or not he's actually there in parts and, actually gets killed on it 
Yeah, that was probably the most confusing thing for me when I had when I, the twist hit. I was like, "Well, what about the cop?" Come <laughs> on. But then she goes. Uh, Petula goes out to where they supposedly buried this cop, and she unearths it. And it's just the plot that at the beginning of the film you saw them all lying in. Yeah, and I just my I think they did a great job of just making my brain go crack at that point and not really know what was real anymore, which is how Petula was feeling. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just, I, one of my favorite things about any, well, certain filmmakers is those people who don't feel the need to give you the answers. They're like, you'll either figure mm-hmm. this out for yourself or you won't. And that's fine too. Yeah. I love that. I uh, expressed this, I believe, with the Guillermo del Toro episode as well, that del Toro is a filmmaker that gives you enough to kind of follow along but he'll make you ask some questions along the way. And he just feels like you should have paid attention. And then you would have had your answers. I love when a filmmaker does that because it's like, well, I guess I got to go do some research and watch a movie again. Yeah, exactly. Like if you can get something new out of a film the second time or the fifth time or the 10th time you watch it and be like, huh, I never noticed that before. I'm, I'm going to appreciate that moment so much more than if a director had held my hand and pointed the moment out to me and not let me miss it the first time around. Yeah, right there with you. I think that that's actually one of the strongest ways you can write a story for a film. Yeah. Not to say that you should intentionally confuse people. There's nothing wrong with a story that is straightforward. But exposition is just so destructive, in my opinion. You don't need to explain everything to me. Yeah, I I wish that I never really learned what an exposition dump was, but <laughs> but now every time one happens and there's just a character explaining what's going on in the story or what's what I don't mind that as much as a character telling me what a story means. That yes. I'm like, don't tell me how to read this film because the best thing is is that people read it differently. We don't want everyone to walk away being like, oh, this is definitely what it means 100%, and that's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is impossible. You can tell me whatever you want to tell me, but the fact of the matter is, film is a text. And yeah. text is made to be read, and I'm going to read it. <laughs> Honestly, I I blame Alfred Hitchcock for this, because he yep. has a habit of explaining his films at the end of his films. <laughs> so... <laughs> fair i blame the studios i suppose a little yeah. more but yeah i just mean like those films like they made a, mm-hmm. a, a habit of having a scene at the end to be like oh this is what it means so much so that in dress to kill they have like a copy of that exact scene from psycho yes. being like oh this is actually what it was all about and i'm like no <laughs> As has also been mentioned in a previous episode, when you are going to do an homage or really take heavy inspiration from a film, really please check out the parts that you have decided to emulate and see if that's actually what made the movie special or if you're just now copying and pasting without really looking at it. Because those sort of postscripts are just so irritating. And let's face it, in Psycho, the only reason it works and why it's weird the only reason we don't just turn it off is because you get that amazing sequence at the very very end of <laughs> thoughts and yes. talking to herself and then you see the little skull appear in his face it's a great shot 
But damn it, we could have had that without the... Just random. cut out the explanation. Yeah. <laughs> like, let us take it away from it. And what I, what I think is happening with people when they do those scenes is... I don't know, I feel like it's misconstrued. They've What's most important to the director is probably the meaning of the film. But instead of like putting that through a different way, they do it in that way where it's like, oh, we'll just tell you that that's what it means. And I'm like, you could have shown that in a way that was like uniquely yours instead. Yes. And as I think it was, I want to say it was Phil Noble Jr. who said this recently, or at the very least, it was based off of an article that he wrote and somebody might have said it on Twitter. People are always going to misread your story. That's just how it is. You can't stop people from having a different perspective than you and getting something else out of it. That's how we are able to queer code films that are <laughs> so totally cis and hetero in the way they were created. But we're like, but you didn't realize there's a queer part of you that you put in the movie and it's in this character. <laughs> so <laughs> it's there. You just it, we will find it and we will write articles <laughs> upon articles about it for you. <laughs> Exactly. Or go on every podcast we can to talk about it with other people who also noticed. <laughs> yeah. And I do appreciate then a movie like Braid where it's just kind of have at it. This is the movie and there's a lot to take out of this. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about relationships. We've talked a bit about uh, queer relationships or queer representation. We've talked about violence, beauty. There's so much in this film that you can pick at and zoom in on. Yeah. Like I said, every shot, it tells a different story. (laughs) Yeah. I think that you could actually, well, good example. The shots in themselves also tell a story. You, you yourself have shown that shot of Petula with the razor blade time and time and time and time (laughs) again. And I love it. I love it. Every time I saw it, I was like, I gotta see this movie. This is is my kind of thing. (laughs) I will keep posting it. (laughs) And and honestly, thank you as well for never, ever spoiling the fact that that blade was never real. I just went, what? (laughs) When I saw the film and I was duped. (laughs) Yeah, considering I talk about this film a lot, I don't spoil anything from the actual film. I'm just like, look how nice it is. (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible how much aesthetics can be the driving force for an engagement with a film. And I hate that in scholarship, people try to see that as a lack of engagement with a film because they care more about form or they care about plot. I've always seen all three of them intertwined that the aesthetics will affect the plot to me and it will affect the form. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand it when people don't think aesthetics are important because it's important to everyone's lives in some way. Like the way we choose to like express ourselves aesthetically is mm-hmm. normally a very important thing to people as like who they are as a person. And especially anyone who is queer, like that's often one of the loudest ways we can express ourselves is just how we look and how we choose to present to the world and it also can show like you know how we feel about ourselves as people as well as like how we want other people to see us and I just think it's so important to bring that into film and the way these are telling stories just as much as the dialogue or the writing or the 
every other aspect to it. Wholeheartedly agree with that. And in fact, I felt that you could see this very strongly in those moments where the trips were happening because there was a kind of bodily experience that was being expressed through sound, framing, and colorization. All of these things kind of lumped together. I found it very interesting how they had these beautiful colors. Everything was very serene, almost as like, ha, 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 (laughs) very music playing. But the camera work was, anybody who's ever been drunk or just a little higher than they ever intended to get and just stand up off the couch, that kind of, oh, no kind of thing they did so well having this camera just teeter all over the place i got so uncomfortable and almost sick from it yeah (laughs) i know the feeling of having that goofy smile on your face when you're also like i am terrible right now (laughs) yeah you're like everything's amazing and i feel like i'm about to die (laughs) yes that's exactly (laughs) the sensation and that can come in many ways i mean that can also come from emotional issues as well or spikes in different feelings and there's a odd comfort in our distress sometimes because it's something that we become habituated to Mm. to do that they needed the aesthetics i don't think that that would have been nearly as powerful if it had just been a a camera that was swinging around (laughs) but it was really the gloss of it that did it for me yeah it was everything because not only did the aesthetics kind of communicate where they were mentally uh, and on their trip and how that was going it it made everything otherworldly you were pulled out of that scene the way they were pulled out of their reality and Mm -hmm. you were just on it with them everything was the wrong color which I I love um films that mess with like hue and saturation because that's like one of the first things I learn as a designer and photographer is how to adjust that and make it seem just wrong (laughs) but still beautiful I think that's a really interesting perspective to have on for this would you mind if you I mean this is putting you on the spot a little bit but (laughs) would you mind trying to do a, a, a brief reading if you will how do you do that how do you make things wrong but right with aesthetics uh i mean that is a a whole thing and it again i am gonna reference midsummer i did not expect to talk so much about a different film that i didn't bring on (laughs) but that does a lot of the same things aesthetically that make you unnerved like in this they'll do the the colors are the extreme angles and the contrasts and things like that. Whereas in stuff like Midsummer, they'll play with things like that warp your sense of the reality, like the way the flowers mm-hmm. pulsate or images are made out of other things, but it's subtle and you don't really, it's that stuff where you don't notice it until you notice it. But then once you do, you can't, look at that image the same way and I think it's yeah it's just those small details of what should feel off and that can change with any shot and it's I find it's normally best not to be too over the top with it Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, there are definitely examples that go a bit crazy with the, at least they lay it on a bit thick. And for some people, it works really well. For others, it's a bit like, yeah, I got it. Yeah, like, I, I just feel like if you go too far with it, you verge more into psychedelic, like color out of space mm. sort of aesthetics, which are very bizarre, but it's not in an uncomfortable way. It's just in a, it's st- it's just unnatural and it's not something we would ever really get to see without that manipulation. Whereas right. these other things are just more unsettling. You're like, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't notice that was wrong at first. <laughs> That's a great summation. I, I, I like the way you put that there. It's like I, you don't notice it at first, and when you notice it, it kind of screams at you at that moment. Yeah, and Braid does that a lot. There's a lot of little, little moments where you just see that something is kind of not the way it would be without that digital manipulation. And if it had just been shot in a straight up scene with normal lighting and it hadn't had those things altered after the fact, it would not have the same feeling to it at all. And where does the beauty lie in there for you? Since I can hear it as well with the way you talk about it, there's an appreciation for this. So what is it that you appreciate with this situation? I mean, so I know you said like philosophically beauty can be objective, but I Mm -hmm. obviously everyone's personal definition of beauty is subjective. And I just find things that are... Yeah, not uncanny valley sort of thing because that's really creepy but um <laughs> just things that are kind of like twisted or a bit uncomfortable or unnerving or ugly I, I find things in that aesthetically to be a lot more beautiful to me than like something that would be conventionally attractive to people okay I've always had that myself. I've been, I, I think it has to do a little bit with what we were raised around or what we came across at a particular age. Because uh, a lot of the people that I know who can't stand any of this abnormality and weirdness, I've also never been exposed to it. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've had the same kind of journey as well, where you just are a bit of a curator for people's strange experiences. because. Who else is going to show them? Yeah, I've always been that person, whether it's in like the family I was born to or my chosen family or my friends. I'm always that one that's like, look at this thing. Isn't it beautiful? Like, it's so weird and creepy and awful. And they're just like, (laughs) Ren, no. (laughs) I mean, you had to have converted a few along the way, right? Oh, definitely. Or or I've just found, you know, like-minded people who also enjoy those things. And thank goodness for those people who (laughs) are like, no, yeah, you, it's, it's okay to find those things that a lot of people will find disturbing or uncomfortable to just be like, yeah, it's beautiful. And I find it beautiful because it's, for me, the most vulnerable part of that piece of art. I think that comes back nicely to the relationship that we see in Braid that you can see the, any family 
whatever family dynamic you have, whether it's your, your, your given family, your chosen family, your friends, you're going to have moments of conflict and, and where you don't align perfectly. Nobody can align 100% with another human being without possibly hating that person. I feel true. <laughs> they have all the things you don't like about yourself as well. And because of that, I really, I was drawn into the harmony that these three had and how accepting they were of each person's different quirks. So, yes, you know, <laughs> So that's what I I kind of was like trying to get at early, but I didn't know how to say it. And you know when we were saying like that they're dysfunctional, and I was like, no, I don't mean like if you're in a dysfunctional relationship, you've got to respect like how that person does something in a bad way. Like, and we, I was like, I completely that was like exactly my point. But the point was was that in Braid, this level of dysfunctionality works for them like that is what they want out of their relationship and they kind of they take the good with the bad because they have a lot of moments of chaos together where there's a lot of conflict but something I really appreciate is like they also have a lot of moments of stillness together where there is no dialogue it's just them being with each other whether they're laid in a graveyard or in a bathtub surrounded by disco balls you know (laughs) but this is like the relationship that works for them and with some people like because not every like no one's completely healthy and sometimes you meet your people and you're both completely dysfunctional but your dysfunction works well together in a way not necessarily like this where they are very unhealthy but like I just appreciate that bond of like yeah we're kind of like mentally ill and we do things the wrong way sometimes but we still love each other and we're still family exactly so love is the key word there you know real love is is, for one it's not always romantic and it can be but it doesn't have to be it's a common misconception that platonic relationships are just as important as romantic relationships especially for mental health. It's it's vital that we have open and honest love for people and that we express that love in acceptance. And acceptance doesn't necessarily mean that you don't draw lines, that you don't show your irritations. Yeah, boundaries are important. You should always have boundaries, even with yourself, like, and especially your relationships with other people. Oh, yeah. If you don't put boundaries for yourself, how are you ever going to... (laughs) make a healthy net around yourself to protect yourself from others. Exactly. You, know, you won't even know what your limits are. <laughs> I, I think these three show that though. You have, they're a really interesting example of three people who don't necessarily know their individual limits, but through the relationship with each other, they're so good about saying nah to certain yeah. things. And the one thing they have that you cannot break is the game. Yeah. If you respect the game, you're respecting each other. And that's why the game works. Yeah, and inside the game, anything goes as long as you're playing. <laughs> exactly. And you have to. Everybody plays. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that it starts off by showing what looks to be a really abusive and toxic one-sided relationship from Daphne's perspective. You have Petula talking about once we're in there, you have to do everything she says. It's all her reality. But then look at the roles that they're given. 
dad yeah. was mom. And then the doctor enters her house. So the doctor's also a stranger. And you have the daughter who, by hierarchical standards, is young and is told what to do by their parents. So it makes sense that, of course, Daphne makes the rules. That's just how the game works. It's the role that she's been given. But as you've pointed out a few times, when they have those moments of quiet and just exist to each other, nobody seems to be in power of any kind. And yeah, even and, within their roles, they don't need to be. And that that power, one of the things I like most about this relationship too is that power isn't set. They all, it, it changes hands throughout the entire mm-hmm. film. Like one minute, Petula is in charge the next minute is Daphne the next minute Tilda's like being really stern and sending Daphne to her room and yeah that's the way it is in real relationships and like group dynamics like there's it it shouldn't be like one person is in charge and like runs his family which is you know I'm not gonna get onto patriarchal nuclear family uh stereotypes (laughs) but that's one of the things I appreciate most about queer families is there is no set hierarchy it's it's whoever needs that power at the time, like takes it and is like, no, I'm not comfortable with this. Or I am. Co- I want it this way. And it mm-hmm. it's fluid. It's not just one set role. And that fluidity is pretty important in any relationship because not everybody's suitable for the, you know, every circumstance. We all have our breaking points. And I've been in those situations before where you have designated leaders who have no idea what to do during a crisis because it hits them in a traumatic way that they just break and fall apart. And so I've seen some of the quietest, most put down people in a group dynamic suddenly be the savior of everything because it have to be. And if they would have allowed that person to be that more often, you wouldn't have had anybody feeling left out. You wouldn't have had this feeling of, Oh wow, you actually came in handy as opposed to, I'm so happy you were here. That's just exactly. And it's like in this, that, while they do like have power changing hands, none of them are necessarily trying to hold on to the power. They're trying to hold on to the game. And like yes. they're they're willing to give that power away as long as the game continues. Which is the greatest part of that chosen family metaphor that we've been uh, discussing. Here. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of how it feels, you know, you you set up unspoken rules and parameters by just respecting each other for who each other is. And sometimes you get on with certain people more than with others. And still, if you have that mutual respect, you know, when you need to step aside and let them take whatever position they need, or sometimes you just have to step in and go, yo, listen, my turn. That's what Tilda does around the end of the film. She's yeah, like, right, she's like, we're not doing this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I cannot be subservient this whole fucking day. I've got <laughs> and I was waiting for it too, considering all the flashbacks they had of Tilda just going, I don't want to play this stupid game. We've been playing it all day. I hate this game. I hate this game. And now it's the one thing she lives for most, because it's the only thing that's ever made her feel safe. Exactly. Like that's that's what their family is. Like they the metaphor is like that their relationship is this game and as long as this game continues playing like they have each other and like in any family family where you have conflict like that hopefully your result would be like you know you can 
you're willing to do what it takes to keep yourselves together, even if it means giving up power or changing like the dynamic, as long as the love stays. You know, that for me is, I think, the most powerful and succinct summation of what to take away from this film. <laughs> uh, did you have any final thoughts you might have on it, or are you happy to leave it at that wonderful statement? I'm happy to leave it there. I've never put anything that succinctly about this film. Normally, I just word vomit for a while, so I'm glad I <laughs> I said something that made sense. I'll end there. You've made a lot of sense throughout the whole podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for your insights on it. But yeah, I really appreciated the way you phrased that. And as you pointed, like you just said, it's that love that I think that is the biggest vibration of the film. And any bit of horror or discomfort or even aesthetics, it all comes down to the love that these characters share for each other. And if you can take anything away from it, especially don't take away the toxicity and the brutality, because that's <laughs> it's a movie, everybody. Please do not emulate movies. <laughs> but do take away the core and the heart of it. In this case, it's about love in all of its facets and in the broadness of the spectrum that you can have of love. Yes, what 100% what they said. Like, that is spawn. Perfect. <laughs> well, then, I think that we have given this film the, the beautiful praise that it deserves. <laughs> so then I'm going to quickly wrap things up. So this podcast is a part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Be sure to follow the Anatomy of a Scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, including... Bodies of Horror, hosted by Nicole Goebel. The American Beyond, hosted by Justin Yandel and Chris Vander Kay, and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can find my written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful. Be sure to keep track of the podcast itself on Twitter and on Facebook with the tag at Beauty Horror Pod. I want to thank my guest again, Ren Crane, for sitting down today to talk about this phenomenal and wonderfully rich film. Uh, so where can the people find you? And is there anything you want to talk about that you might want to plug a little bit here? Well, I mean, first, just thank you for having me on. I love this angle. I think aesthetics and mm. beauty in horror is so important. I'm so glad that you're doing this. And I loved your views on my favorite film. It was very nice. Like, yeah, I loved that. And as for what I'm up to, you thankfully <laughs> mentioned most of my projects at the top of the episode. So obviously people can catch that. But if you want to, you know, keep up with everything I'm doing, the best place for that is Twitter. I have a link tree with you know, access to all of my projects. And that's just at B underscore Raw Banshee. Which is a wonderful name, by the way. Raw <laughs> Banshee. Thank I you. <laughs> immediately get images from that wonderfully ghost. It's the ghost in the film cell, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I love Banshees since death. So <laughs> there you go. Perfect. There you go. Well, I was really happy to talk about your favorite film. I know that must be a very personal and, and we've used the word a lot, a nice vulnerable place <laughs> to be. 
and I, I could not have been more honored to be a part of that. So thank you so much, Ren, and thank you, dear listener, for joining us in talking about the beauty that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. There's no beauty here. Squad.